Good morning. My name is Tim Clark. I am head of the private funds and secondaries group at, at Freshfields. I'm joined today by Pablo Kahlo, who is a partner of Fairview Capital Group, which is a boutique financial advisory firm focused on secondaries transactions. Good morning, Pablo. Uh, you look well as always. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, and thank you for joining us uh, and our Freshfields clients last night at the Spencer House event. It was it was terrific that you could join us. It was fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, so to kick things off, tell us a little bit about the arc of your very interesting career. Specifically, how did you become involved in secondary transactions in the first place, and how did you end up co-founding Fairview Capital Group, which is a firm that's focused on advising on secondary transactions? So I come from the LP side, joined a very large, was one of the largest insurance companies in the world, one of the biggest private equity investors 27 years ago, into the private equity group, we're only two people, and uh, built it uh, over time. First secondary deal, I was on the advisory board of a fund that was 12 years old, now 23 years ago, and we won it out. We uh, told the manager that we had to find liquidity uh, for our capital. They only had one company left and uh, did a, what was the first um, GP-led transaction ever. The manager was a very reputable French group investing in emerging markets. I was representing the insurance company with its balance sheet capital. And they went through a process which was not very dissimilar to um, what we do today and they put a price and we took it we sold the company at four and a half times EBITDA so 20 years later I meet one of the members of the this asset manager that bought us out the GP and I told him what a terrible deal we did by uh, selling to them at four and a half times EBITDA that with the knowledge I have of the market now I would never do such a thing and I would have them run a completely different process and he said Pablo you're wrong it took us 14 years to get out of that darn company mm. so the bottom line of, of of my early experience is that these deals need to be fair that the buyer doesn't always win and it always has to be done for the sake of the LPs and then the second um, uh, involvement uh, was now uh, nearly 20 years ago when we did, when I started for good in secondaries where um, at this insurance company, we decided to pull off what was then the largest secondary transaction ever. Um, the largest uh, secondary fund at the time had about uh, 350 million of capital. And uh, a seller, a German bank came to us saying, I have 150 LP stakes. Uh, we need to monetize them because we're merging with another bank and we had some balance sheet issues. So we pulled the deal together. Uh, it was 750 million cash. We structured it with 50% leverage, which was very, very racy for the time, and syndicated across uh, LPs, uh, both the equity and the debt. So fast forward is what uh, many uh, are doing today. And it was really early days. And I, I think I was very, very lucky uh, to have those early experiences that then guided my uh, activity in the secondary business uh, throughout, first as a buyer and over the last decade as an advisor. Interesting. So in broad brush, uh, how has the secondary market changed over the arc of your career in terms of, I mean, you mentioned the 
the fund you worked with was uh, a $350 million capitalized uh, secondary firm. Tell us about the evolution in the marketplace and where we are today. The market has become bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, it's now 100 plus billion. Back then, it was just a few sporadic deals here and there. Pricing has become more transparent, more efficient. So from an LP standpoint, much more attractive. From a buyer perspective, they've had to drive returns through financial engineering, through better underwriting, uh, adding some value to their deals. So the market has evolved for, for all parties. But what's most important is that the secondary market has become accepted, accepted by LPs, that it's a fair way to take liquidity, accepted by sponsors as a tool to manage their assets and for buyers and investors in those buyers, a way to make money. Yeah, I would agree with all that. So the transaction- And for, for lawyers as well. <laughs> yes, we, we've done okay in these processes too, I, I must agree. So in the transactions we worked on together, I've always been uh, deeply impressed how you and your Fairview colleagues have led your GP clients through the twists and turns that are inevitable in these secondary transactions from start to finish. So from your perspective, what are the key ingredients to a successfully run secondary transaction and, and in particular, a successful GP-led transaction? So, so picking up on my background again, um, as an LP, then became a secondary buyer and then advisor, but, but most of my time uh, was uh, the early days spent as an LP, an advisory board member, and what was a very, very large portfolio. And we had about a thousand funds in our aggregate fund vehicles, and about 50% of them were struggling to get above the hurdle. Uh, many of them had issues. Uh, many of them had clawbacks and things like that. And I was part of a small team. We were half a dozen people managing a very large portfolio. So I understand what the LPs are going through. And this is what I tell my clients. Number one uh, rule of the success of these deals is empathy with the existing investors. And we first role is to explain to our clients what the LPs are going through, how the LPs see them, because there's always a grudge in an LP base. And that's critical. The second step is to open the, uh, the bonnet and check the portfolio and rationalize with our client carrying values. Do they make sense or not? We don't uh, provide an opinion on valuations themselves, but we do try to provide a little bit of perspective how the secondary market would perceive them. And then my second stage of my career as a secondary buyer comes into play. You run the same models that a buyer would and come to similar conclusions. And normally we're within 10% of, of the expected bid prices. And we can rationalize those with the manager. And sometimes the conclusion we reach is that there's no time to, this is not a time to do a deal. Mm -hmm. I think your portfolio needs to mature or evolve. Or pricing needs to change before there's a deal to be done. So that's from a value standpoint. And, and ultimately, LPs focus hand-holding our manager as to what deal is, is potentially viable. And then when we present the deal to buyers, we try to you know, get ourselves in their shoes. 
and explain the deal as they would like to see it. We try not to be the investment bankers that put a lot of clays on an info memo uh, to try to disguise some underlying issue. We try to be very much upfront because we think that velocity of capital is what the secondary market brings to investors and what we bring to buyers, right? When they participate of one of our processes, they can trust that the documents are, to the best of our knowledge, reflective of the portfolio. When we have conversations with buyers, we try to be not only uh, honest, but also transparent with what we have seen. And that, I think, makes it easier for what we think is the second best thing to a yes from a buyer is a quick no. So that just keeps us all moving past. I, I agree with you that there is widespread acceptance in the LP communities for secondary transactions now as compared to when we both started doing these transactions uh, years ago. But with that, it's still not uncommon for GPs to encounter friction with their LPs about these deals, and whether it's about perceptions of conflicts of interest or expenses. You mentioned empathy, which I agree with you, putting the manager, putting itself in the shoes of the LPs in the situation. Uh, but what other tools do you think are useful in trying to manage that investor friction so that you minimize the investor franchise risk to the manager, but also maximize the potential for getting an approval for the deal to the extent you need LP approvals for the deal? So communication, number one, mm -hmm. uh, information, number two, mm -hmm. and, uh, and transparency of the plan, uh, number three. If you're able to deliver to LPs from day one a path forward to a deal so they know what to expect, then they will react early. Uh, you can correct course if it's needed. You can trim the sails. You can put on the engine, whatever it is uh, you may need to do to make sure that if not everybody is comfortable, because a good negotiation makes us all a little bit uncomfortable, but at least to be able to manage any uh, roadblocks that may be in place. We uncover any grudges, disalignment of interest or issues of the past that enable them uh, to see ahead. We speak to the advisory board at least four times throughout a deal and we make it a feedback loop. We speak to every LP at least three times, and that's a hell of a lot of work. And we've done deals with over 100 LPs, and that's a, do the math on the number of calls mm. we've had. Even I have. can do that math. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and that is, uh, that's just important uh, for institutional investors. They're normally prepared to process the information that you lawyers write that is always excessive. I'm sure... Um, I take that as a compliment. Airtight, <laughs> but uh, that was the compliment, that yeah. it's airtight. Yeah. But it's difficult when an LP receives a document, and then we, we've seen them very long, and they're not prepared to read it through. So by the time they get your uh, document, they know exactly what the deal is about. They've reacted to it early on. We've told them about the process. We've told them about pricing on a first-round basis told them about pricing on a binding basis. So by the time they, they get your document, they understand the deal and they just have to focus on, on their options. All right. So there are no surprises. You, the, the communication early and consistent throughout the process 
de-risk the process from a point of view of, of having an investor being surprised unless that investor has had its head in the sand for most yes. of the time. And, and counsel plays a huge role here as well um, because you interpret the, uh, the LPA, you may interpret any elements that may limit transfers uh, of the underlying portfolio and you put all the warning signs uh, early on for the, for the sponsor, for our client to understand and also for us to perfect the communication with LPs, are there any blocks, minimum votes that are required, and side letters that may need to be disclosed, and all those things that having good legal due diligence in advance is a huge tool for the advisor and for the process, and most importantly for the LPs. So single-asset continuation vehicles, so-called trophy secondaries are now the biggest part of the GP-led marketplace, as opposed to multiple asset continuation funds or full fund recaps. What do you think is the driver behind this phenomenon? Uh, and is it, in a way, an admission on the part of the GP community that the traditional tools available for them for exiting PE deals, whether they be IPOs or sales strategics, are often not available to GPs within the normal 10-year time frame of a fund's life uh, that most funds operate under? No, I, I think that uh, single-asset GP-LEDs or all GP-LEDs are, are all-weather strategies. They're obviously attractive for sponsors. You crystallize or carry. You keep the asset without any need for diligence. It takes a hell of a lot of work to buy a company, you know that. It breaks down the carry uh, pooling, right? You go from pooled waterfalls into deal by deal mm -hmm. uh, waterfalls. So it becomes a no brainer, right? You totally de-risk uh, the rest of your, of your carry and you can swing for the fences on this asset. You provide liquidity for your LPs, which is essential to raise the next, the next fund. And for buyers, it's, a, it's an opportunity to participate of a, a very good asset that the GP is keeping for the right reasons. And, and those right reasons are obviously because there is more upside, because you may need more money to support the balance sheet, to buy minority shareholders, to change strategy, maybe to take on more risk, maybe to take on less risk, whatever it is. But it's really a no-brainer. And they're still loaded. Uh, meaning we're still, there's still investors are paying fees and carry. Mm -hmm. So they're here to stay, and I think it's a new, somewhat of a new uh, tool in the box that is uh, being used uh, everywhere, not just on the large deals. So for these single asset trophy uh, continuation funds, how common is it nowadays to see a dry powder component from the secondary buyers where they're providing unfunded capital to build out the future business of the asset that's moving into the continuation fund? I think it's useful from every standpoint. I think it's it's good for the for the companies, whether it's to grow, whether it's to restructure, or just to to buy a minority shareholders. So that makes sense. It's also part of the justification of what you're doing, why you're doing the deal. If the company has been in the fund for five or seven years, it's as the youngsters say, not called to draw money for that company. Right, So it's good to give the investors the option to take cash now. If they want to put in more money, they can always roll the dice again and participate of this single asset continuation fund. Mm -hmm. There should always be a rollover option. 
hopefully status quo, but there's no such thing as lawyers have explained to me. Uh, there's no such thing as perfect status quo, but mm -hmm. at least a seamless transition for them. So, so it makes sense. Yes. Well. So right now, despite record fundraisings by secondary firms, so now we see firms raising five, ten billion dollars pools of capital. Uh, the law of supply and demand is still favoring buyers who are looking for the highest quality deals, often with the less hair on them. Does this mean it's harder for uh, secondary advisors to find secondary capital for the traditional mainstays uh, of the secondary marketplace? For example end-of-life fund solutions or stapled secondaries for teams spinning out of institutions? So the beauty of the secondary market is that it's the laws, it, it takes the laws of economics of supply and demand in consideration and therefore there's always a price that clears the market. And uh, it's important for, for people to understand that if a deal is discounted, there must be a reason for it. And it's our role as advisors to run a thorough process to make sure that pricing is fair and the rationale for that pricing transparent. So the existing LPs can make a decision whether they like that pricing because they want to take cash or they, or they don't and then want to remain with the assets. If the funds are not in carry, then the new money provides alignment and that's a good thing. If the funds are in carry, then it's just steady she goes. So it's always a, a net net positive. So let's switch to the uh, LP side of the equation. We've been talking about the GP leads quite a bit, but the LP led portfolio sales, we've seen an uptick in recent times in the volume of activity. Uh, what are the drivers behind institutional LPs selling off segments of their fund portfolios? Same old reasons, uh, denominator effect with the correction in the capital markets, uh, the need for liquidity, and liquidity have slowed down from private equity funds uh, having less, uh, less exits. But it's not really an uptick in the LP-driven market. It's just back to the norm. What happened over the last couple of years is single assets and GP-leds in general sucked up a lot of capital from, from the market. Right after that, as buyers were trying to diversify, reverse diversify again, doing LP stakes, NAVs were flat, overvalued in many cases over the last year or so, and therefore the bid-ask spread was just too wide. And people tried to bridge it with deferrals, people tried to bridge it with cash sweeps and things like that, but it was still too wide. Now that with NAVs uh, now flat for a while, valuations have crept on a relative basis into NAVs, so portfolios are more attractive from a relative basis, and NAVs started to, to, to tick up again, then buyers have come back. The bid and the ask spread has narrowed, and market is active again. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the deferral of purchase price. So Deferred economics, whether it's a deferred purchase price in the context of a LP portfolio sale or some sort of earnout option in the context of a GP-led continuation transaction, do you see there's more of a trend to that in the marketplace? And if so, what percentage of the overall value do you think is being captured by these earnouts and deferred payments relative to the overall transaction value? 
So the two very different things, right? A deferral is just financing. Yeah. And if it's free financing, as it's been in many cases, then you have to apply a cost of capital to avoid fooling oneself and do the NPV of that, uh, of that deferral. Uh, it's just that's just a matter of alternative use of funds. For some company, for some sellers, it's a matter of accounting that they want to lock in a value at a certain date. And when the cash comes is less of an issue. Burnouts, on, on the other hand, are, are very different creatures, right? And they, they do reflect a transfer of risk. They enable the buyer to pay much more on a relative basis. Headline pricing matters. But obviously, once you peel the onion, you see um, you know, all the details down below of, of risk uh, that the seller is taking, whether it's a single asset risk of an earnout, which may pay out earlier, but becomes binary or a cash sweep with pools or cash flows, but tends to be very, very long-winded uh, with a very long tail. So it depends really what, what the seller needs, what the seller wants. In an LP trade, it's very simple because different buyers will propose a price with structure and the seller looks at them all and picks the best for their needs. In a GT-led, it's much more complicated because it's the advisor working with the counterparties and the GP to produce what we think is the best option for LPs. And that's not always uh, straightforward. And we consult with the advisory board about their perception of that. And as we speak to investors throughout the process, we try to get their feedback on, on how would they want to see their money back. And it's definitely an iterative process. And you cannot please everyone but at least you can do what is value maximizing based on the underlying projections for the portfolio. Right, understood. So it's, it's hard to go through our, scrolling through our news feeds each day and not see some article about how artificial intelligence is potentially going to transform business or a way of life, including in the secondary space or articles around how AI may uh, be a, a factor in terms of LP uh, portfolio sales going forward. What do you see as the possible future for AI in the secondary marketplace? So it helps, helps us to work on pacing of broader industry portfolios. We've done in the past lots of securitization work for clients where you need to run simulations. So having a very large repository of, of info as artificial intelligence enables you to, to, to dig from, from, do data mining basically in most cases. That's helpful. We used to rely on very limited data sources of various paid providers, but I think artificial intelligence enables us to go a little bit deeper and find uh, more information on the industry uh, beyond just the purely reported numbers to understand performance, adjusting for survivor bias, and things like that. So it helps with the with a broader predictions and the, the, the laws of big numbers. But still, the secondary market, just like private equity in general, will depend on bottoms up. Artificial intelligence can also help you run, run comps. Maybe what comes out of some of the... Uh, Data providers are, are the most obvious ones, but we use uh, the various tools to try to produce the better comps or better ideas to analyze 
a company, analyze an industry. I think it helps buyers. It helps us. Uh, many times we're not experts. We're jack of all trades and, and, and not industry experts for any particular company. So that helps us get up to speed very, very quickly. So I think it's made us more efficient, a little bit more knowledgeable, but it's still artificial. So the work has to be done anyway. I'm glad you didn't answer by saying it's going to replace the lawyers as part of the secondary transactions. <laughs> Never. Never because, because the critical role of lawyers and, and financial advisors and bankers in these processes is not just interpreting the, the letter of the document, but it's also the principles of the deal, understanding LPs and how they react to these things, uh, human nature, greed and fear in all those things, right? So your advice in, in these deals, Tim, and for the ones we've worked together are, are a very good uh, case study in that you have to you know, get everybody comfortable that what we're doing is the right thing from a fiduciary standpoint. And that's sometimes not written. Yeah, you used the word empathy early on in terms of thinking about the LPs. I think what you're also saying for, for both of us, what we bring to the table, the value proposition of the advisor and the secondary lawyer is really judgment and trying to guide what are disparate you know, participants in this transaction to something that makes sense for all of them. And uh, hopefully AI doesn't get so smart so soon that it's able to do that. If, if it does, it may replace us as human beings, not just as uh, secondary market participants. So the secondary marketplace has been, over our careers, right, largely dominated by North American and to a lesser degree European assets, with buyout funds being in the bullseye of, of the secondary market activity. Uh, do you expect to see more growth in other regions like Asia Pacific, perhaps, or Latin America? We certainly have done a deal together in Latin America. And how about growth in other asset categories like credit funds and venture capital funds? There's a lot of evolution in the market, for sure. Different regions have, to, to take the legal perspective for a second, different waterfalls, different partnership agreements, right? Pool, um, deal by deal carry versus uh, European carry or sort of pooled American style uh, waterfalls versus uh, European ones. That makes a huge difference in different markets because you'll have to deal with clawbacks. You'll have to deal with cash strapped managers. Here in Europe, somebody may have a successful franchise with lots of new funds raised but he may or she may be very, very cash poor, right? While Americans get their money out a lot mm -hmm. earlier, and that creates a very different dynamic for liquidity events of these deals or cutting the tail off other transactions or doing single assets that crystallize carry. Um, this is mainly the difference between Europe and the US. So this is why Europe has been, you know, dis historically quite active, uh, disproportionate for its capital. Also, uh, some other markets like you know, emerging markets in particular have had uh, windows of exits and they've had headwinds in currencies. And sometimes a manager has put together a stellar portfolio, but uh, they just can't sell it because there's, there's no exits, there's no demand, there's, there's, no, there's no capital markets. You know, similarly, from a currency standpoint, you know, it's been a real issue in some countries that currencies have created headwinds for exits. Return expectations are much higher. 
And as there's been trends in capital raising, we follow those trends 10 years later from a secondary standpoint, creating those solutions. Understood. So last question, the life of being a secondaries advisor, or in my case, a secondaries lawyer, can be very stressful. We have to find the work, we have to then manage these processes, get them closed, and then have a cup of tea or coffee and, and get on to the next one. Yes. How do you manage stress of this business uh, in order to stay on top of your game uh, where you can always you know, deliver the best advice with the clearest head? It's not the cup of tea or cup of coffee. I try to have what they call a dram of whiskey every evening. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your advice, doctor, on that one. Pablo, it's been great having a conversation with you on secondaries. It's, it's always wonderful spending time with you, but your insights in this industry are, are, are really interesting to me, and I'm sure they'll be interested to our podcast audience. So thanks again. Thanks, Tim, for having me here. It was great to working together. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you on the next Fresh Fields podcast.